The Energy Gang is brought to you by PG&E, driving toward a clean transportation future. In most of the U.S., transportation is the single largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. That's certainly true in California, and it's why PG&E is working hard to make it easier for customers to go electric. Be it new rebates on your next personal vehicle purchase, or adding charging stations to your parking lot and electrifying your fleet, PG&E can help individuals, businesses, and cities invest in the right electrified transportation option. Find out more at pge.com gtm. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I am Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. This week, the Green New Deal ripples through Washington. A few leading Republicans are responding to the progressive climate plan with some ideas of their own. The New Manhattan Project and the Green Real Deal are two of them. They've gotten mostly a cold response from the left, but has it broken the ice for a legitimate cross-party policy discussion on climate? We'll look at the GOP responses and any impact. Then Trump's latest verbal convulsion. Speaking at a fundraiser, the president said wind noise causes cancer and kills property values. Yes, we are actually talking about this. It's a good chance to review what the actual literature says about the impact of wind and where these myths come from. Finally, we'll go to Catherine's home state of Virginia, where there's been a ton of legislative activity on solar, efficiency, grid infrastructure, and climate some of which was blocked by the state's mega-utility Dominion Energy. Catherine's going to fill us in on the politics. And Catherine herself has stepped over the lines of Virginia and into the District of Columbia, where she is coming to us from the offices of 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. Hello. I did spend a day deep in the heart of Virginia yesterday at the TomTom Festival, though. Yes. Tell us about that. Your brother interviewed you on stage with your mom in attendance. Absolutely. It was great. Absolutely wonderful. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to Virginia. Jigger, do you have any parents looking over your shoulder supervising this recording session? They actually all just left. I have all the family in town this weekend. They all came in yesterday and they went down to see the cherry blossoms today. Well, on the other side of that Northern Virginia line in Bethesda, Maryland, is the voice of Jigger Shaw the president of Generate Capital. How are we doing, Jigger? I'm doing great. You know, I feel very pumped up. I just think that there's a lot of great stuff going on, and I'm excited to talk about it. Well, let's get pumped up about climate then, because it seems like we're at the beginning of a real climate conversation here. The most impressive thing about the Green New Deal isn't the plan itself, because it's more of a broad aspirational document than a real plan. It's that climate is finally on the lips of high-profile politicians in Washington, and a few Republicans are issuing some plans of their own. Tennessee Senator Lamar Alexander is talking up a 10-point plan called the New Manhattan Project that puts a heavy focus on R&D. And Florida Congressman Matt Goetz, who once called for abolishing the Environmental Protection Agency, crafted a resolution called the Green Real Deal that takes a deregulation approach to supporting clean energy alongside R&D. Other top Republicans, like Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski, say they're going to follow along with some concrete plans of their own. So what do we make of the Republican response, and where does this put us in the next stage of the debate? Catherine, how would you characterize the Republican response? So I think we need to look at what happened when the Republicans were fully in charge before the House flipped to the Democrats in 2018. And that is that for 10 years, 
the Republicans did absolutely nothing on climate change. In fact, they thought they really considered it like a liberal plot to control the economy. And they didn't do anything. And they talked a little bit. Carlos Corbella mentioned it, but he didn't get anything done. Nothing. All of a sudden, the Democrats are talking about it. The House flipped. And now Republicans are starting to talk about it. This is not by accident. This is not that suddenly they've seen the light on climate change. This is that they've seen the light on politics and on their own fate. And they need to figure out how to do something because I think that it really is going to become and is becoming a political issue. And so I don't, you know, I think that they may be putting forward these bills for really good other reasons, like economic development reasons, um, science reasons, but not because they really care about climate change, because I will guarantee you that if in 2020, the House flipped back to Republican, you would have no one talking about climate change again. Jigger, what about you? How do you read the politics here? Well, I don't know that I'm the best person to read politics, but I'll give you my completely uninformed opinion, which is that... You know, that that I think that for sure the, the Republicans feel like they're backed into a corner, which I think is, you know, fantastic. Um, you know, that, that this is this issue is really, you know, in the headlines and people have to respond. Separately, I saw Lamar Alexander's work and it's literally um, a cut and paste of his exact speech in 2008 when he called for a Manhattan project. So I don't think that what he announced was new. He does love R&D. I think that when you look at um, Matt Goetz's work, um, it's more interesting. His talking points, frankly, I think belie what actually is there. I talked to Charles Hernick, who's uh, the director of policy over at the Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. And I think he had a big hand in writing some of the first drafts of that uh, Green Real Deal. And when you read the Green Real Deal, there is an acknowledgement by the author, that the, that the wind and solar tax credits really did work and really did bring the costs of wind and solar down. And so those are not in the talking points that Matt Getz talks about on Fox News. So that is problematic. But I think if the Republicans were to announce in a full-throated fashion, not just that the federal government has a role in R&D, which they've always been for, but that the government has a role in reducing the cost of technology deployment through some of these tax credits, that would be a huge shift in terms of their their stance. Well, not necessarily. I mean, Chuck Grassley has always pushed, I mean, he is the main person in the Senate who's pushed the production tax credit for wind. So I don't think it would be a shift at all for some of them who have a lot of renewables in their state and really care about it. I think what you see in proposals like Matt Getz's is that there is a very solid rejection of any kind of regulatory interference. So they do not want the EPA involved. They do not want any kind of codes or standards. What they want is to put money into research and development, which is a very important thing to do. And that's good that they're talking about that. But when he says, I reject regulation and instead want to unlock unlimited potential of American innovation and ingenuity, I mean, part of what you have to do for that is set the rules for how you want to operate and disincentivize what you don't want. If you don't want 
carbon emitting technologies, then you need to either take away the incentives for those, take away all of the credits that they get, or you have to put regulation in place that says that disincentivizes them from polluting and instead incentivizes clean technology. So, I mean, there, there's a big chunk missing if all you're doing is putting money into new technology. Well, that is what they love doing, though, is to to incentivize new stuff, but not actually hurt the old stuff. But let me just clarify what you're saying, Catherine, because I have never heard Chuck Grassley give this argument. I get the fact that he supports wind. But when I've talked to his staff, I don't think anyone has ever said, yes, we believe that it's the federal government's purpose to commercialize all of these technologies through tax credits, and that by doing so, that they'll come down the cost curve and that we should do it systematically for 20 different technologies. No, he has definitely done it for wind. I mean, yeah, though wind not that is I get, a huge Matt, part of the economy of his state. Yeah, so he's definitely done it for wind. But what Matt Getz is saying in the Green Real Deal, which is what perked me up, was that we should systematically do it across all of these technologies, right? Like, I think it is perfectly fine for the Republican Party to come back and say, the answer that we have to the, the Green New Deal is that the states should actually lead all this through RPS standards and regulations and all that stuff, and that the federal government just has to provide tax credits to buy down the cost to the state policymakers of uh, this technology curve. I think that's a fine alternative to the Green New Deal and one that many people in the clean tech community would support. Yeah, and I don't even see it as necessarily an alternative. What I see is that you have really progressive ideas right now in the House to address climate change, and even having Republicans offer different ideas is a healthy thing. Because in the end, because the Senate is controlled at the moment by Republicans, you still have to have something that gets bipartisan support right now. And so even having them at the table at all is great. So uh, this is not to put down the fact that Republicans are offering something. I just think that part of it is in reaction to the Democrats offering it. So um, I'm glad that they're there. I hope they're going to be able to get some bipartisan bills done and and that the Republicans, as well as Democrats, will be able to shape those. Sure. It may very well be that Matt Gates's plan leaves out a ton of really important stuff, or that Lamar Alexander's 10-point plan is a rehash of something that he introduced a decade ago. But all the same, if you actually break down what's in the plans, there's a lot of good stuff in there, and it's stuff that any progressive plan would include. And the reaction that I've seen has mostly been a cynical one on the left because of the Republican Party's history of climate denial and climate skepticism, nobody wants to take these, or very few people want to take these policies seriously. But if you dig down into the documents themselves, given they're not that detailed, about as detailed as the Green New Deal plan, there's a lot of good stuff in there. And it feels like we're missing a lot of it because of the politics and the reaction against Republicans. There is, Stephen, but I wouldn't say that Gates's is the starting position. I think that would be the end position if you had an all-Republican party that just ended up at the lowest negotiating point. So yes, you're right. There's some really good things in it. So that's one side. The Green New Deal, now remember, there's a lot of work being done right now in the House. There are a lot of hearings going on right now in multiple committees so that they can come up with some ideas. And some of them are not huge. Some of of them are incremental, but really smart and things that we should be doing that everybody can coalesce around. So I I wouldn't look at these in in isolation. Like Gates is one, that's great. 
AOCs is another, that's great, but really what's happening is on the ground. And I think we need to look at the House in totality and see what they're doing and what all the committees are producing. And some of them are not huge bills, but together they can really make a difference. And then they can pass all of those bills in the House and hopefully they can make them bipartisan. They don't have to, but it would be great if they did. Then you look at the Senate. And what on earth is Mitch McConnell going to ever let pass? What will he do? So they have to make some political calculus on making sure that they get reelected, that there's a certain number of people who are who need to take certain positions in order to get reelected. Like Cory Gardner is really, you know, his seat is a real toss up for the next cycle. He needs to have a lot of latitude to do things that look more progressive to the voters of Colorado. And, and Mitch McConnell will give him some mo- room to do that. But that doesn't mean Mitch McConnell is going to put anything that Cory Gardner does on the floor. So there has to be, you know, there has to be some reality here in the conversation where no matter what happens and what passes, is it going to get through both chambers? You hope it does and you hope it's done in a bipartisan way. And the really good news is that everybody's talking about it. But in the end, the people who control the chambers and what gets to the floor are Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. Right. But when you think about, I mean, the other political news of the week was how Beto O'Rourke got um, grilled about his vote um, to end the oil export ban. And for those of us who are around for that, I mean, the clean tech community really did throw the environmental community under the bus to get that deal done, right? And we got ITC and PTC extensions out of that compromise, right? And a lot of folks are now saying, well, it wasn't worth the compromise. We shouldn't have made it. But we we did make that compromise. And my sense is, is that the clean tech community would do that again. I think if we got a tax bill, not unlike the 2005 Energy Policy Act or the 2007 Energy Policy Act, and it includes $6 billion of additional money like Lamar Alexander talked about for R&D and that kind of thing, and also included some of the tax credits that Matt Getz is talking about here, my sense is we would take that deal in a heartbeat. Yeah, but that's what you get at the end. That's when the sausage is made. That was like over the course of an evening. I remember very clearly being in contact with the White House during a lot of that. And, you know, like who's going to vote for what? Who do we have? Who don't we? How are we going to mush this together so everybody's happy? And But that is like the last hour. You have to do so much work to get there and make sure you've built your case for everything that you want in whatever that deal is so that you can't be at the last minute saying, I want to get this one thing done. You have to have worked it through all the committees. You have to have had markups and make sure people that it's socialized, hopefully in a bipartisan way. So there's a lot of work to do before we get to that part of negotiation. And what I want to make sure of is that we don't negotiate against ourselves until we've actually done the homework of getting these proposals really fleshed out, talked through with witnesses and hearings and and a really good understanding of what the impact of them could be um, before we try to mush up some sausage at the end. So AOC has come out and called the plan lame. One columnist in Florida called Matt Gates stupid. A lot of people on Twitter have expressed serious cynicism around these plans because of how the Republican Party has acted on climate for the last 10 years. But again, there's a lot of good stuff in here. And I wonder, what is the political calculus? When AOC comes out and calls it lame, why wouldn't she take a different approach and say, well, look, we can agree on a lot here. You agree that this is a threat. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Let's pair it with the Green New Deal. What's the political calculus for not doing that? So one one take I have on that is you have to keep your grassroots 
folks activated. You have to get people continuing to to march for climate. You have to really continue to build this as what it is, which is an existential crisis for the future of our planet. And so that's not when you say, oh, okay, let's just negotiate something. That's, that's not what you're doing. Now, the negotiating can be done through committees and through hearings, but that's not how you keep people activated and keep people interested and moving and pushing forward on the concept. So I feel like there's sort of two different issues. One is, what are you going to do during the hearings and the markups and you know where legislation is made? But then how do you also keep political pressure and activism alive? Yeah, I look, I, one thing I would say is, Catherine, do you think there's any chance in hell that something passes this legislative session through the Senate, right? Because why would AOC cut a deal no. with Matt? No, I absolutely agree. It will not pass the Senate. I don't think McConnell will put anything on the floor on climate. Right. So that in the political theater, Stephen, that's your answer, right? Like until you think that your overture around saying something nice about someone else's bill and potentially co-sponsoring it or whatever else is actually going to result in progress around getting something passed, you keep your base energized and you keep like talking it up and you keep everybody like, you know, so fired up that they want to volunteer to help elect, you know, progressives in the next election cycle. You don't actually cut deals. Well, call me naive, call me a mealy-mouthed moderate, whatever you want to call me. When someone comes out with a plan with some legitimately good points, I don't care what end of the spectrum that person is on. I don't care what the history of the Republican Party has been with regards to climate, I'm going to praise that plan. And I'm going to say, that's something to work from. And I have not seen that from very many people. And I guess that just bums me out that we're in this place where we can't create a safe space for Republicans to actually present plans. Yeah, I I want there to be a safe space for Republicans who care about climate. I really do. And I want there to be a way for them to offer solutions as well, because they've been really not doing that for the last decade. They have been preventing anyone from having the words climate and change together. And I think, um, you know, maybe this will open the door for some real conversation. We'll see. I, I remain slightly skeptical at this point. And so, you know, Stephen, I think there are a lot of people in your position. I don't, I think the people that get picked up on the media are the ones that yell about things, but most people are kind of like, Oh, this seems pretty reasonable. Um, but I think the reality is we're in a very political world and we'll just have to see what really happens. Coming up, we flag ourselves on Facebook safe from wind noise cancer. <laughs> <laughs> First, a serious message from PG&E to all you companies and municipalities out there electrifying your fleets. Now is the time to begin electrifying your fleet. And if you're in PG&E's service territory, you can take advantage of limited time incentives as part of PG&E's new EV fleet program. Do you operate school buses, transit buses, delivery vehicles, or other fleet vehicles? If so, get educated, gain access, and make the smart choice to take your fleet electric. PG&E provides substantial financial, logistical, and construction support for all the electrical infrastructure needed to charge a customer's fleet. And with new commercial EV rates from PG&E, fueling your fleet just became simpler and likely cheaper. Get in touch with one of PG&E's specialists to learn more about electrification pge.com slash gtmev that's pge.com slash gtmev well 
We try to avoid talking about the latest oddity that Trump tosses out of his head on Twitter or in freeform speech, but this latest one was just too rich to pass up. Let's hear the president's latest comments on wind. If you, if you have a windmill anywhere near your house, congratulations. Your house just went down 75% in value. And they say the noise causes cancer. You tell me that one, okay? You know, the thing makes it so... And of course, it's like a graveyard for birds. If you love birds, you'd never want to walk under a windmill because it's a very sad, sad sight. It's like a cemetery. We put a little... We put a little statue for the poor birds. <laughs> it's true. Oh, it's like free jazz. But this is just one of Trump's greatest hits. He once compared wind turbines to Pan Am 103, the flight that was bombed by a terrorist over Scotland in the 80s. He's called wind farms killing fields, presumably conjuring images of the Cambodian Civil War. And showing some variation in his routine, he's also claimed that LED bulbs cause cancer. I would find this endlessly hilarious if Trump didn't have the biggest megaphone in the world. But it's an interesting story because it shows how myths and conspiracy theories stick around and have strange ways of popping up. And under this presidency, theories that never really made it out of the corners of the internet are suddenly espoused by one of the most listened to people in the world. So now it's a good time to review what the research tells us about wind noise and property values. Jigger, can you remind us Trump is presumably talking about wind turbine syndrome. Um, Where does this myth come from? Well, there was a lot of um, work done many years ago around the fact that old school wind turbines that spun fast uh, created these sort of very low level, I wouldn't say it's noise as much as vibration. It's infrasound. Yeah. And if you lived close to them, did potentially upset your sleep or... You know, I think that what's happened since then is that wind turbines have got large gearboxes now. The wind turbine blades move much slowly, much more slowly. So birds don't really, you know, run into wind uh, blades anymore because they can sort of see them and they're moving so slowly. And um, and wind farms, these these windmills are so large. I mean, they're like 120 to 200 meters tall. They can't be placed near anybody's home. There was a big case uh, involving Sun Edison, which I think they got the wind farm through their first energy, uh, first wind, sorry, acquisition. And it was in Vermont. They went back and forth. The folks claimed this syndrome. And in the end, they found out that the group just wanted more money for their house. So I think that happens a lot. I think there's a lot of sort of anti-wind people that sort of um, sort of make this stuff up. But there's no scientific data to prove that there's any long-term health impacts from uh, living next to wind farms. Yeah, there's a gentleman, Michael Nissenbaum, who did a paper called The Effects of uh, Wind Turbines uh, in Wind Turbine Noise on Sleep and Health, and it was totally debunked. They used uh, bad data. They didn't have the right sample size. You know, just it, There really isn't any evidence of anything, and certainly not anything like cancer from wind. No, not at all. Simon Chapman, a professor of public health at the University of Sydney, wrote a great piece in The Conversation, and he reviewed 17 studies looking at the available evidence about wind farms and health, and those are international studies, and they found no connection whatsoever related to wind farms and negative health consequences. Although he did point out that there's a lot of literature around the nocebo effect, 
And the nocebo effect is when you have a pre-existing attitude about something that impacts your perception of, say, a noise. So it can actually make you feel like you're suffering from those health consequences when you already feel like that's going to happen to you, which, of course, makes Trump's words matter. When the person with the biggest megaphone in the world talks about these health consequences, that can work its way down and have an impact on people's lives and their relationship to these projects. I was trying to figure out where this would have gotten to his head. Um, and there there are all these conspiracy, you know, he does follow a lot of conspiracy theorists and there are these chemtrail truthers who, those are the ones who think that the commercial airplane trails are spraying mind controlling drugs on everybody. So, so they've, they've kind of got wrapped around in this, you know, wind causing weather manipulation, population control, um, you know, all these kind of theories. But a lot of the things that are talked about that are that are bad byproducts of wind are things that are really difficult to diagnose. They're easy, like you said, they're very susceptible to conjuring like headaches, nausea, stress, insomnia. You know, they, those can be caused by a lot of things. It's really hard to kind of pinpoint what is causing them. And so I'm I'm not a doctor, but I feel like they're within the the world of conspiracy theories, that's the kind of thing that pops up and then he could have just you know, threw in the word cancer. And there's never been, even the conspiracy theorists have never used the word cancer. Yeah, this particular myth that Trump is echoing seems to come from this concept of wind turbine syndrome that originated from a woman named Nina Pierpont, who wrote a book about wind turbine syndrome, I think back in 2008. And that made its way around in anti-wind circles, but was quickly debunked. And well over a dozen studies all over the world have shown that there's no connection to negative health consequences and wind farms. With that said, we can't ignore the fact that this can be an issue for some communities. It certainly doesn't cause major health consequences, but it can cause annoyances and negative perceptions of wind farms, particularly when houses or communities are located very close to these turbines. So in a rural community, the typical nighttime sound level is at 35 decibels. And a wind farm at a thousand or a couple thousand feet away can be 45 decibels. So you can see how a new development close to houses in a rural environment can cause disturbances. And if you're a developer and you're not communicating properly those impacts and you're pretending like they don't exist, that's a really serious problem. Now, this happens to a small number of communities, but it does happen, and it's the result of poor communication and a failure to recognize that, yeah, these sound issues can have an impact on folks, particularly those who live in remote areas. So these sound impacts do have consequences on people's lives. They happen to be a small number of people, and they certainly do not, categorically do not, cause the kind of health problems that Trump alluded to. But this is an issue that every developer needs to consider when communicating the impact of a project. Yeah. And you know what does cause cancer is fossil fuels. Well, in any case, I don't think this is going to be the last time we have something crazy come out of Trump's mouth. No, it certainly will not, particularly when it comes to wind. Well, let's go over to Virginia to wrap up the show. The legislature has been quite busy there. 
Already this year, there have been bills proposed to beef up utility efficiency programs, open up the market to third-party solar financing, create new rebates for solar, and create a fund for efficiency on schools and public buildings. The results have been mixed, though, and some are blaming Dominion Energy, one of the state's big utilities, for lobbying against many of the bills. So it's as good a time as any to talk about the influence of big utilities in states that are lagging on clean energy. Catherine, what's been happening over there in Virginia? Fill us in. It has been. And last year was extremely busy, too, because they passed the Grid Transformation and Security Act of 2018. And what this did was it released, it unwound a rate freeze that they had in place. They're returning $200 million direct refund over the next two years to customers. Um, They're going to return a billion to customers over the next eight years. And they're allowing the utilities there, Dominion and Appalachian Power and co-ops, to be able to start thinking about grid transformation, clean energy, really kind of freeing them up. And so part of the issue is, all right, so what's the next step? We have this big act, you know, Virginia uh, Dominion, I want to call them Virginia Power because I worked there for 10 years. You know, Dominion has put forward ideas, some of which have been supported and some of which have not been. But there are a lot of other details that have to be taken care of. So this legislative season, they tried to clean some of that up. And there were some really good things that happened. Uh, the rural co-ops, which aren't APCO and Dominion, did a compromise bill to allow for PPAs and to increase their net metering from 1%. It was only 1% to between 5 and optionally 7% and to allow 125% of generation from rooftop solar. That was great. There are also a lot of really good school programs um, there and broadband. So one of the issues that rural co-ops have is that a lot of them don't even have broadband. One of the guys I talked to uh, who was on my panel yesterday um, Sam Brumberg, he's with the Association of Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware Electric Cooperatives. He said that often you'll find at the local McDonald's, all the kids in there doing their homework. And the only way they can do their homework is because they have internet at McDonald's. They don't have it at home. So broadband is really, really important to get clean energy and solar installed. And it's just important to the rural communities um, more generally so they can get access to information. So these are all good. I think um, you know one of the big problems is that Virginia customers pay a lot more on their electric bills than North Carolina because they have not invested as they should have in energy efficiency. So some of the delegates, even in very Republican counties like Washington County, County where my brother lives, you know, they've put they've gotten $50 million to assist low income elderly and disabled folks for energy efficiency and solar projects. So Virginia is like still kind of in the starting on the starting block. Um, but that said, there are 17,000 megawatts of solar in the PJMQ just in Dominion service territory. So it's starting, I think, Part of the issue is we need to get a lot more done, and Dominion has a huge amount of influence over both the General Assembly and the Virginia Corporation Commission. Well, but this is happening in states all over the country, so there's certainly a lot happening in Virginia this year and last year, but why now? Why focus on this problem in Virginia at the moment, Catherine? 
Well, say they want to control what happens in the Commonwealth. They want to be able to dictate how much of everything is built. You know, about 25% uh, allowed for third-party ownership for renewables, but they would rather not have a lot of third parties. You know, that's one of the complaints I heard a lot at the TomTom Tom Festival from, there were a lot of developers there, a lot of financial folks. And one of the things that they said to me uh, was, you know, we want to be collaborative. We want to bring a collaborative model into Virginia, and Dominion is really loath to collaborate. And I think that's something that they're going to have to continue to push on because it has been a company, and it was was when I was there, that, you know, hey, we are the home of innovation. We're the innovators. We're the ones that control it. We control everything in the state, um, in the Commonwealth, as as energy is concerned or electricity is concerned. And, you know, we don't need anybody else. And I think that's going to have to start to change. And it, it is starting to crack a little bit, but there's still a lot of frustration. So, I mean, I think we have to do a little bit more work to set the table in Virginia. Um, I mean, Virginia's called the Dominion State on purpose. Like, it's not like an accident that it's called the Dominion State. Um, Dominion runs that place with an iron fist. I mean, they literally have a pack in Charlottesville that only supports candidates who won't take Dominion money because Dominion has every single politician under its thumb. I mean, the worst, egre- most egregious person is Dick Saslaw, who's sort of the head of the Democrats um, in, the, in, the, in the House and, you know, won't let anything through that Dominion doesn't want, right? I mean, this latest session, the solar industry had to hire a mediator, you know, in the Rubin Group to try to get stuff done because they just couldn't do things just through lobbying, right? They That without the Rubin group at the table, they just couldn't figure out a way to even have a coherent conversation between the legislature, the governor's office, and, um, and Dominion. So like, there's a lot of people who deserve a huge amount of criticism in Virginia, including all of their elected officials, um, like Senator Mark Warner, who used to be a governor, who was also in the pocket of Dominion at the time, etc. Right? Every single chief of staff for a governor, and when they leave their job, goes to work for Dominion. Right? So it's no accident that Dominion has been set up in the way that it has. And their abuse of power is just really, really extraordinary, right? I mean, and we should get through some of those topics. I, I don't think it's I like I I think it's great that they're building seventeen thousand megawatts of solar, and I don't have a problem with utility c- companies owning solar and all the renewable energy in their state. But I just think some of their practices have really been terrible. Well, I think Virginia is sort of in the spotlight right now. Um, it's by the way, the data center capital of the world. There are tons of data centers, that, and all these corporations are saying we need renewable energy. Um, and and I think that Virginia is one of those places that's being overshadowed in renewable energy development, certainly by North Carolina. So even when they are training in the community colleges, training solar workers in Virginia, they're hired in North Carolina because they can't get jobs in Virginia. So there, there are a lot of structural issues, and Virginia is has been a blue state. Now, the legislature is not blue, but it's really on the cusp of it. So there, there are a lot of reasons that Virginia is in the spotlight. There's also some offshore wind that's happening there. And right now, there's just a pilot program, but 
there's potential for a lot more. It's just, it's one of those states that you feel like should be much further along than it is. Um, and there, because there's so many entrenched in, interests, it's not. And yet there is just a surge of interest from developers and now from the citizens of the Commonwealth to try to change it. I talked to a lot of people from Appalachia. My brother is from Appalachia and he um, moderated my keynote uh, fireside chat at TomTom Tom Festival. And it was great because we spent a lot of time talking about parts of the state that, you know, out of sight, out of mind, as my brother says, like, you don't see us, you don't come visit us, and we no longer exist to anybody. Those people are desperate to try to change the way the people in that area live and to try to do things differently. And and if that means they have to do something outside of Dominion or find some workarounds, they will. Well, I really, I mean, I really think that Folks deserve huge kudos for sticking with it in in Virginia. I mean, this has really been a 10 to 15 year effort by a lot of folks, I think, to make the progress that they've made. But I mean, just one more anecdote. Amazon is desperate to catch up with its peers and be 100% renewable energy. But Dominion has been so slow to install solar in the state that they haven't been able to keep up with the data centers that they've promised to power with solar power, right? I mean, 70% of all the internet traffic in the country, probably in the world, actually flows through the Dulles Corridor um, because of, you know, the national security implications there. Well, isn't the Virginia state motto, Six Semper Tyrannus, thus always to tyrants? I would. I prefer the Virginia is for lovers moniker. <laughs> That's more appropriate. We're full of love here. <laughs> okay, well, let's go into our free electrons and... Catherine, you gave me a sneak preview. I know you wanted to talk about something Virginia-related, so I guess we'll go to you and just feed off of our Virginia conversation. What's your free electron? Sure. So one of the most fun things in the world was that the Tom Tom Festival allowed me to invite my brother to be my moderator, and we had a blast. Um, And my mother came and watched, which made it uh, even more fun, although terrifying for for us. We were like, wow, she's going to be there watching. (laughs) But um, my brother also recently launched his own podcast, and it's on iTunes and other podcast venues, and it's called Good Energy. And my brother is a philosopher. He has a PhD. He was a tenured professor in San Antonio at Trinity University. And so this podcast is a really interesting mix of energy tips, top energy stories. He talks about Scottish hydrogen and wind in one in one episode. He does allegories and word games. It's it's very accessible, but it's a really interesting mix of energy and philosophy. And in fact, it comes under the philosophy piece. When you look up look it up on iTunes, it's listed as philosophy. Um, and this kind of built off of a radio show that he does every Tuesday and Saturday nights um, at Emory and Henry College. But it's really great. Um, he, he got a ton of interest from people at this festival to be on the podcast to to help him find new topics and think of things to talk about. But it's really great. I hope uh, people sign up to listen to Good Energy. I guess the only question I have is when is your mother going to get a podcast? <laughs> I know. She, uh, it was so funny because we're like only half her kids are on stage. What would happen if we were all on stage? <laughs> but I think we're just going to continue to get free lunches out of it. When she comes, we'll, we'll have lunch with her. <laughs> Jigger, what's your free electron this week? So uh, for those of you who don't know, our good friend Jeff Wolf uh, just took over um, as a senior executive at uh, Tritium, and um, they made a huge announcement this week that they have a new 
fast charger that can charge a uh, a car at 20 miles per minute, right? So to put this in perspective, this would be about two to three times faster than the Tesla fast charger. And so you really can get, you know, fully charged up or 70% charged up in 10 minutes. Um, so really, really impressive. And it really shows that range anxiety is a thing of the past. That's amazing. I can't even believe that. That's going to be a game changer. Yeah, it's, it's, it really is. Particularly, I think, for ride sharing, right? So with California mandating that Lyft and Uber really move to 100% electric cars, I think you're going to see a need for this kind of fast charging for the um, drivers to accept um, um, electric cars. Mine is an important milestone for offshore wind. I read about it in Recharge, actually, this morning. And offshore wind generation, for the first time, surpassed solar generation in Germany. Germany has, of course, been developing solar and offshore wind for some time, but it has deployed far more solar capacity than offshore wind capacity. But the five gigawatts or so of offshore wind surpassed the uh, this output for solar. And although it was a quarterly thing, I suspect that this is going to become a trend. And it's something that we'll probably see in the coming decade in East Coast states as well. We're planning a few gigawatts alone in New York. And over the next decade or decade and a half, we could see between three and five gigawatts of offshore wind developed along the eastern seaboard. And that will make offshore wind a really important component of the renewable electricity mix in uh, coastal cities. So an important milestone for an important up-and-coming, ever-expanding, gigantic renewable energy resource, offshore wind. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm really excited about offshore. I think we're going to see enormous growth. Indeed. Well, that's it, folks. Thanks for being with us again this week. Subscribe to us anywhere you get your podcasts. Hit us up on the Twitter sphere. We are all there. We love your feedback. We've gotten a bunch of emails from folks, and we read them all. We consider them all. I'm sorry that I can't respond to all of them. Some people have this philosophy where they respond to every single one. I unfortunately cannot do that, but your emails do get read, and they do get factored into how we think about structuring this show, and they provide some leads for following up on. So thank you for those, and please keep sending in your ideas and your comments. If you think that there is someone in your life, in your professional life or personal life, who would love this show, pass along a link, and we will catch you and hopefully them next week. With Katherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. Postscript Audio.